And we want tonight to begin in verse 18, Revelation 2 and verse 18, and read down through the end of the chapter. And we're just going to give consideration this evening to the church at Thyatira. As we've been walking through the letters that Jesus sends to the angels of his church in different places, we've been reminded of how deeply he is acquainted with his people. And we'll be acutely reminded of that in verse 18, because there we will see that Jesus identifies himself as the one who has a piercing gaze and a powerful step. It says in chapter 2 and verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." As we think about this Jesus who identifies himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, we remember and recall what John saw in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You remember there that John is describing what he saw when he heard a voice uh, like the roar of many waters, and he turned to see this voice, and what he saw was Christ himself, he saw Jesus, the Lamb, who is there next to the throne of the Father. And what John described in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, is that Jesus is indeed the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and he is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze that have been refined in the fire. And so now Jesus says this of himself. He says that he is the one with a piercing, penetrating gaze His eyes are like fire, which is to say that he sees everything. There's nothing that's outside of his view. And he sees what really is, not just what's on the surface. Sometimes we put on a good front. We have those 
We have those ways of showing people only what we would like for them to see. Um, you all know that Mary and I, we, we recently began buying a house, and I say it that way because we're going to be buying it for quite some time. Um, some of you been there and done that. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So we'll be homeowners um, uh, come October of 2052. Won't that be a grand thing? Um, so anyways, as we've been walking through that journey, uh, one of the things that we were looking for in a home um, is that we, we, we weren't big fans of the open concept. That's the world we live in today, but we're just not big fans. We rented this house one time. When you walked in the front door, you were in the entirety of the home. All of the living space was open to public view. And so you opened the door, you were in the living room, in the dining room, in the kitchen. It was all one big room. And I said, I don't want to live like this. You know why? Because I want some places that are hidden. I, I want a place to hide the dirt and the grime and the dishes and the laundry that hasn't been done. There has to be somewhere for us to not put everything on public view. Sometimes we do that in our spiritual lives. We would like to make people think that we are more intent in our devotion to the Lord than we really are. But Jesus sees us as we are. And that is both comforting and also terrifying. It's terrifying because he knows that we are sinners. You heard in the reading of the letter to the church at Thyatira, you heard Jesus say that he wouldn't burden his people. That those who haven't been caught up in the works of Jezebel that they are not to be overly burdened. Instead, Jesus calls them to faithfulness. Jesus knows who's with him and who's against him. He knows those who walk in obedience and in the, in the holiness that he requires, and he also knows those who are far from him. And where you and I fail to have a meter on Sunday morning that tells us those who walk in the church who are actually devoted to Christ and those who walk into this place who are opposed to him Jesus never fails to know who in the gathering of his people actually belongs to him because his gaze is penetrating. John tells us that Jesus spoke words to the angel of the church at Thyatira and he not only spoke about that penetrating gaze, but he spoke about his powerful step. He said that he is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. He walks heavily. There's no enemy that he is not able to crush. His footsteps are known by his people and they are known by his opponents. When Jesus comes walking into the church, everyone takes notice. Several years ago, we were on a mission trip to Cherokee, North Carolina, and we were staying in this cabin. There were about 15 students and uh, a few adult chaperones. One of our chaperones was uh, our, our high school Sunday school teacher, Coach George Norton. And, and Coach Norton was a, an old professional basketball player and then had coached basketball for 46 years and taught public school. And, and Coach Norton, one night he was down the hall and, and I was coming up the hall. It was wooden floors. And Coach Norton said, I know those footsteps. Nick, you doing okay? And I was taken aback. I thought, my heavens, the man knows how I step. This is a problem. 
Jesus walks with a pattern that is recognizable. It's an authoritative step. It's a powerful step. He walks with feet that are like burnished bronze. And Jesus says this to his church. Here's what he knows. In every one of these letters, we've talked about what is it that Jesus knows about his church. And here, to the church at Thyatira, Jesus says this, I know your works. He wants them to understand that he knows what a long obedience in the same direction looks like. Some of you will be familiar with Eugene Peterson. Uh, Peterson wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, the message. And um, it, it's not the best for your particular studying of the, uh, of the text, but it's awfully good for devotional reading. It's very helpful uh, in grasping the sense of the text. And Peterson wrote a book on discipleship, and he defined discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. And I thought about that when I listened to what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira. Because he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And then he says this, and that your latter works exceed the first. So often people wonder, what is the measure of real faith? How do you know that you really belong to Jesus? How do you know that, that your life is really hidden with Christ on high? And the measure of a real faith is that the trajectory of your obedience is ever upward. It's not to say that we never fail because we're sinners and we are in the process of being sanctified. But it is to say that if we really belong to Christ and we're really pursuing Him and the Spirit of the Holy God really resides inside of us, then more and more and more we are being conformed to the image of Christ and our lives are approaching the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's an upward trajectory. It's what we sing about in the old hymn. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, but still I pray till faith abounds, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Jesus here says that the latter works of the church at Thyatira are greater than the first. It's because they are learning what it is to have a long obedience in the same direction. They are being called upward and onward. You notice that Jesus talks about their works. He says, I know your works. And then he talks about love and faith and service and patient endurance. And we might think that those things somehow stand apart from the works. And so let's rid ourselves of that idea and understand those are their works. Those are the things that they are known for doing. When you think about love or faith, you might think of those things as being rather passive, as being nouns and not verbs, as, as being states of being rather than actions to take. And yet Jesus says that love is one of their works and faith is one of their works and service is one of their works and patient endurance is one of their works. They're known by these things. These are the things they've been given to and that they've devoted themselves to. And he says that in their life as the people of God, they're only getting better. You know, it's interesting that Jesus says that he knows their works. Because of all the churches in all the cities of Asia Minor that Jesus addresses, 
Thyatira is perhaps the least among them. This is a small, out-of-the-way place. This is, a, this is a place that time forgot. And yet Jesus knows them too. I always think it's worthwhile for us to remember that, that there's no person who serves Jesus who's insignificant. And there's no work offered up as a sacrifice of praise to his name that's unimportant. Jesus knows everything that is done for his glory. He knows those things that are bold and earth-shaking and well-known. But he also knows the small acts of obedience in the same direction. He says to Thyatira, I know your works. And he says they're only getting better. The latter is greater than the first. So I want us to ask in thinking about this verse, I want us to ask the question, how do we know when our latter works exceed the first? How do we know when our latter works exceed the first? And I want us to think about these four works that John tells us Jesus saw in the church at Thyatira. And I want us to consider how these things might play out in practice. So the first is this. You know you know that your works, your latter works exceed the first when you choose to love unconditionally the people who have offended you or who may annoy you. Just practically, you know that your latter works exceed the first when you choose to love unconditionally the people who've offended you or who annoy you. Um, we would all love to be so gracious and gentle that no one ever troubled us, no one ever got on our nerves, no one ever bothered us by their actions, caused offense. But that's not the real world, is it? We live in the real world where we are interacting with other sinners and we're sinners ourselves. And so because of that, we are prone to experience strife and contention and division we're prone to take offense. Even in the church, even where God's people love each other, sometimes these things happen. And when they do, it's easy for us, it's easy for us, brothers and sisters, to cause division between each other. To say that I'll love them, but I won't like them. To act as though love is just a state of being and not an act of service. And Jesus says here that love is one of their works. It's love here is agape. It's the unconditional love. And so here's a reminder that when we choose to love the people who offend us or even the people who annoy us, then we are showing that we're growing. Our latter works are greater than the first. How do you know that your latter works exceed the first? Well, first, when you choose to love unconditionally the people who have offended or who annoy. Secondly, you know that your latter works exceed the first when trusting God in the midst of strife becomes your default rather than your last resort. You know that your latter works are exceeding the first when trusting God in the middle of strife becomes your default rather than your last resort. I've been working on my computer a fair amount today. It's not my favorite thing to do. 
And inevitably, uh, I have to think about printer settings because my computer doesn't always default to uh, the normal settings. It defaults to whatever the last setting was. And so uh, when I print in color it, and then I go to print a black and white document, it always goes back to color because that was the last thing I did. And then I print in black and white. Next time I need to print in color, it will print in black and white unless I tell it to do otherwise. The defaults change. I'm not exactly sure why. But in my life, my default is not always to trust the Lord. Often my default is to fear or to worry or to embrace anxiety. I, I was telling someone this week um, that prior to experiencing COVID, and some of you have been down that road, um, the way that it affected me is that I needed way more sleep than I'd ever gotten in my life. And so I could go home and sleep for 12 hours at a time and it was not enough. But before that, in the world before COVID, I might have slept four hours a night. And I would lay awake for a couple of hours trying to go to sleep. And my mind was racing through all of the different things that were going on and all the things that I had ever experienced. And I would play out scenarios in my mind and wonder if I had said this instead of that, if I would chosen this instead of that, where would I be? How would that have turned out? Would God be more pleased? You understand this is insanity. But that's my default. And it's not healthy and it certainly isn't holy. Because it leads to fear and not to trust. And so how do I know that my latter works exceed the first? Well, I know that when I more and more am defaulting to trusting God in the middle of strife rather than trusting him being a last resort. Number three, how do we know that our latter works exceed the first? We know that when ministering common grace takes up the space in our lives. How do we know that our latter works exceed the first? We know it when ministering common grace takes up the space in our lives. So Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, I know your works. And then he tells them what their works are. He says, I know your love. I know your faith. And then what does he say? I know your service. The Greek word for service here is diakonia. It's the same word that we use for the word, anybody? Deacon. This is our word deacon. Diakonia. And so I put in my notes, when ministering or when, quote, deaconing, when your deaconing of grace, common grace, takes up the space in your life, then the latter is greater than the former. Jesus says of the church at Thyatira that they are putting themselves out for other people. The word for deacon, it's the word for ministration or for service. It's the idea of a household servant going about the business of caring for those who have come to enjoy a meal. And literally, it is someone who stirs up the dust with their feet. They cannot sit still. They're always working. They're always serving. They're always finding a way to, ex to express hospitality, to extend grace, to give care. And Jesus says that's what the church at Thyatira was marked by, and it's what you and I are called to be marked by. Serving others is... It's a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world. And so I think one of the ways that we know that, that our latter works are greater than our former is when our lives and the space in them 
begin to be filled by the extension or the ministry of common grace. Do you live with margin in your life? Is there room for the care of others? Sometimes in our lives, when we come down to our financial situation and we make our budget, we budget right up to the penny, maybe even over. And when our neighbor experiences loss, we have nothing left to give. Sometimes in the budgeting of our time, we schedule so many things to fill our schedules, to make ourselves busy. To check off that thing in our mind that says, if I just don't have any time left, then surely I've been productive. But then when someone calls to say they need a helping hand, we have nothing to give. I think part of living a life of grace, of being formed to the image of Jesus Christ, of embracing service, is recognizing that we're to leave room for other people in our lives. There's supposed to be some room around the edges. And that space that we leave as a bumper or a buffer in our lives, it shouldn't be filled up with simply trying to please ourselves or enjoy all of our favorite pastimes or or stock up on all of our favorite possessions. It ought to be filled with the care and the service of those who are in need of God's grace. So how do you know that your latter works exceed the first? When you choose to love unconditionally, when trust in God becomes the default, when ministering common grace takes up the space in your life. And then number four is this. You know that your latter works exceed the first when your spiritual strength grows such that you are pressed but not crushed. You know that your latter works exceed the first when your spiritual strength is growing such that you are pressed but not crushed. Jesus says that what he knows about the church at Thyatira is that one of their exceedingly good works is their patient endurance. They face difficulty. Their difficulty is much like that of the church at Pergamum. They are they're in a world where, where relating to other people is based on your affiliation uh, in, a, in a guild, a work relationship, a union, we might say, in our day. And a part of their participation in these guilds was their willingness to go and offer sacrifices at pagan altars. And so when Christian people, under conviction of the Holy Spirit, chose to disobey the guild standard and not go and offer worship at a pagan offer or not eat food sacrificed to a pagan god, they were often dismissed from the guild. And if they were dismissed from the guild, they couldn't practice their trade. If they couldn't practice their trade, then they were without income. And so they walked through the financial and physical hardships that come to a people who live at the fringe of society. And in the middle of that, Jesus says that one of the characteristics of their work, of their faith, is that they patiently endure. They're not undone by their troubles. They're not undone by their trials. They're they're not undone by these difficulties that they face. They wonder how they're going to make it financially, yet they trust the Lord. They wonder how uh, they're going to make it 
physically. They'll, where are they going to, to receive their food if they can't purchase food in the marketplace? And yet they trust the Lord. They're willing to patiently endure, to keep trusting God and keep serving God even under these difficulties. How do you and I know that our latter works exceed the first? Well, we know it when our spiritual strength has grown such that we can be pressed but not crushed. In 12 years of vocational ministry and seven years of full-time pastoring, I've known some people who walk through some awfully difficult things. I've known people who've lost loved ones, lost jobs, gone through extreme medical crises over long, long periods of time, years even. And I've wondered how is it that they maintain their faith in the Lord? And the only answer is that God's grace at work in them is strengthening them so that although every avenue of the world's disorder presses in on them, they are not undone by it. And that's a proof that the latter exceeds the former. Jesus tells the church at Thyatira what he knows about them, and then he offers a warning to them. He says in verses 20 to 25, he warns them that his church, he warns his church of a certain judgment that comes to those who embrace sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. As we walk through these verses, I think you'll see clearly that spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality go hand in hand and they cannot be separated. It says in verse number 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. In the ESV commentary on on this passage, I just want to read this paragraph. It's a good summary. The writer says, John picks up the name of Ahab's wife, who played a central role in introducing Baal worship in Israel, referencing 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31, just as he earlier referenced Balaam in the letter to Pergamum. This so-called prophetess, like the historical Jezebel, was subverting the people of God by introducing idolatry to the church at Thyatira, her teaching was deceiving others so that they engaged in sexual sin and ate food offered to idols in pagan temples. See, Jesus says that the danger of the church at Thyatira is that of loose living. It's that they no longer walk in holiness. They, they no longer are pursuing piety. Instead, they are giving way to the ways of the world. And it's because of an enemy within 
We're reminded of the warning that the Apostle Paul gave in Acts chapter 20 to the elders at Ephesus when he gathered them at Miletus. And you remember there that Paul warned them that after he left, wolves would come both from without and from within. We would love to think that all of those who gather in the Lord's church for worship and for fellowship actually have God's best and God's people's best at heart. But the reality is that there are wolves within. There are those inside the body, inside the gathering of the church, who are not actually faithful to Christ and who do not actually intend to build up the church, but instead intend to subvert its mission and ministry. And here we see that in the church at Thyatira, there was one such one. Jesus calls her Jezebel. This, I think, is to be taken as a real woman. She's symbolic. Later on, we will see that there are symbols of a woman who who plays the whore, who represents a whole order of disobedience and of rebellion against God in his ways. But I don't think Jesus is talking about merely a system. I think he means a real person. I think there is a woman in the church at Thyatira that is intent on dividing the people of God and causing them to walk in disobedience to Jesus and his calling on their lives. And so he calls her out for what she is. He says she's Jezebel. She is the one who intends on leading God's people astray. So I want you to see in these verses five marks of those who would lead God's people astray. Five marks of those who would lead God's people astray. The first is this. Those who would lead God's people astray, they believe they possess authoritative and superior spiritual knowledge. Those who would lead God's people astray, they believe that they, uh, that they possess authoritative and superior spiritual knowledge. He says in verse number 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. The fact that this woman calls herself a prophetess indicates that she believed that she was the spokeswoman of God She believed that she had a message that was authoritative for the people of God. She believed that she had insight into the will of God and that she could speak with an authority above that of Scripture itself. Jesus says this woman calls herself a prophetess in your midst and you tolerate that. You allow her to get away with these things. No one's called her out. No one has silenced her. No one's rebuked her. No one's corrected her in a spirit of love. No one's come alongside her and said, you can't act like that in this church. There are some things that are beyond the pale. There are some things that are a step too far. And it's incumbent upon the whole community of God's people to hold those who speak accountable. And yet they've not held her accountable. They have tolerated her, Jesus says. This woman, she believes that she is authoritative, that she has superior spiritual knowledge. You may not know this because you're not the pastor of a local church, but you would be amazed at the number of people who walk through the door and think that they've been sent by God to correct all the things that we don't rightly understand about the Bible or the gospel. Just this week, it happened uh, that somebody 
shared with me that they, they felt like that was their calling to come and to correct what we don't rightly understand from the book. And I offer that just to tell you these people really do exist. And it's sad. It's awfully sad that there are those who are so dis- distorted and disturbed in their view that they've been taken in by the lies of the enemy and they've given themselves to it. But what is sadder is that the church of Jesus Christ might be torn apart by them. Those who would lead God's people astray believe they possess authoritative and superior spiritual knowledge. Number two, those who would lead God's people astray are intent on educating others in this spiritual knowledge. Those who would lead God's people astray are intent on educating others in this spiritual knowledge. They're never content to keep it to themselves. Those who believe they have the right understanding of the book, those who believe that they understand the truth that is somehow devoid of the book itself, those who are sure that they know the right way to heaven and the right understanding of God that is contrary to orthodox historic Christian teaching, they're never content to keep it to themselves. They are always intent on gathering a following. I've seen this play out in uh, one of the churches that I served. We had this situation where someone came and believed that he had a better understanding than that of the historic Orthodox Christian church and was intent on gathering people. And so he worked and used opportunities in the life of the church to pull people aside and gather them into Bible studies in off-campus settings where he educated them as to what he believed. And it was sad, and it is sad, because he was intent not on promoting the gospel, not on building the life of the church, not on holding to the historic teaching of Scripture, but on promoting what he believed was his superior spiritual knowledge. When someone approaches you and says that they have this understanding that no one else does, there ought to be red flags that go off in your mind. You ought to run from that. When someone says they've discovered something that no one ever knew before, you should run just as far and as fast as you can. Because in 2,000 years of the Lord's church, Jesus has preserved his gospel and he has preserved his people and there's nothing new to be discovered. Number three, those who would lead God's people astray entice God's people to embrace sexual immorality. They entice God's people to embrace sexual immorality. It says in verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. The word here for sexual immorality um, is the word pornea. That's what she is. She is, she is fornicating. She is, she is causing them to embrace a lifestyle opposite to the holiness code that God demands of his people. The interesting thing is that this word uh, pornea that's used here, fornication, it's the word, sexual immorality is our modern translation of that. This word is often a euphemism for spiritual idolatry. 
It's usually the way that people refer to idol worship. And so the question that every reader of Scripture has to ask is, is Jesus saying that this woman is responsible for merely engaging them in the worship of idols, or is it also that she's engaging them in sexual immorality, enticing to them, in, them into that? And the answer is this, both. They can't be divorced. They cannot be separated. Where there is spiritual idolatry, there will be sexual immorality, always and ever. If you didn't have the chance, you should look up the 60 Minutes episode from this past week. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Bart Barber, had a 13-minute segment where he and Anderson Cooper had an interview and he talked about a lot of things related to our Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I don't know Bart Barber. I'm, I'm rel- relatively impressed by him, mainly because Bart Barber pastors a church a lot like Elkdale, First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas. He's a pastor of a small church, under 300 people. He's been there for a long time, over 20 years. And in a world where we seem to value megachurch pastors, Bart Barber is just an ordinary, faithful servant who is honest about our struggles. And of course, in the course of discussion in 2022, Bart Barber was asked a question about human sexuality. What were his convictions and what are our convictions as a people called Southern Baptists? And Bart Barber said, we believe God designed gender and we believe that gender is good And we believe that it fulfills its goodness best when it is in the relationship of a man and a woman in covenantal relationship for life. And everything outside of that is it's sin. And Anderson Cooper asked Bart Barber, he said, and I love this response. He asked Bart Barber, he said, so you you believe, he said, do you believe that, that those who are in the LGBTQ plus community can be converted out of that? Do you believe in conversion therapy? And Bart Barber said, I I believe sinners ought to be converted out of sin. And I'll praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for somebody who gets it, who understands that there's common ground in our sin, but there's also common ground in the grace of Almighty God who bids us to come to Him and find life and forgiveness and salvation. But as I thought about that, it's a reminder that when the culture rebels against the teachings of Almighty God and the tenets of His uniqueness as the only God, she will always pervert the things that He has ordered for the world. And so it's why Jezebel is enticing the people of the church at Thyatira to embrace the sexual immorality that is a part of pagan worship in the culture. Because if she has rejected God himself through her superior spiritual knowledge, then she herself practices these things. And that's one of the things Jesus says. So she entices God's people to embrace sexual immorality. And that is one of the things that marks those who lead God's people astray. Corollary to that, those who would lead God's people astray entice God's people to participate in spiritual idolatry. When someone is intent on dividing the people of God, they will offer up someone or something else as the object of worship. 
It might be themselves. It might be a system of beliefs. It might be some sort of affiliation in an organization, but they will offer something else to take the place of the worship of Almighty God alone. And then I see in verse 21 that those who would lead God's people astray, they refuse to repent. You see that Jesus says about Jezebel. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I want you to focus on the first part of that verse for a moment. I gave her time to repent. In a moment, we're going to think about the warnings and the judgments that come against those who would divide the Lord's church and who would lead God's people astray and the wonder that Jesus has in devoting himself to the reputation of his people. And in a moment, it might seem awfully harsh the way that Jesus condemns Jezebel and those who participate in her works. So just stop for a moment and recognize that before Jesus brings a word of condemnation and before he rebukes and rejects her and before he says that he will pour out wrath upon her, he says, I gave her time to repent. It is part and parcel of the character of Almighty God to be magnanimous and gracious toward the children of earth. We think about the story of the the Ammonites who lived in the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And you remember, what what did God tell Abraham? You're going to go and sojourn in a foreign land and your descendants will live there for 400 years. Why? It was because the wrath of the Ammonites wasn't complete. God was being patient and long-suffering and enduring and merciful toward those who were apart from him and was giving them time. And yet with time, they only hardened themselves against him. God has given Jezebel time. This woman who is leading his people astray, he has given her time to repent and she has not repented. And so wrath is going to come. I want you to see how seriously Jesus takes the reputation of his name and his people. The first thing that we should note there is that Jesus is willing to afflict Jezebel with physical pain. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Do you understand the word picture here? the play on this image. But here's a woman who's been engaged in sexual immorality. Her bed has been used for something else. And so Jesus says, because she's been unrepentant, we're going to turn that upside down. And where once she had pleasure, now she will only have pain. She will be tormented in her sickbed. Jesus is so concerned with the reputation of his name and his people that the person who would dare lead his people astray will suffer the consequence. Jesus, number two, is willing to assign her partners great distress. He says in verse number 22, he says, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. The word throw here, that, that's intentional. It's the word balo. It, it means to throw. It's the same part of the word parable. You remember we said the word parable uh, is to throw along or to cast alongside of. It's to para means alongside and balo is to throw. 
sort of throw alongside of, well, that comes into view here. It's this word balo, and it means that Jesus, he literally is going to cause this to happen. He is going to pick these people up and throw them into these circumstances. It's not by happenstance. It's not by chance. It's not just something that that came about. This is the assignment of Almighty God. He is assigning the partners of Jezebel great distress. It's how much he cares about the reputation of his name and his church. Number three, Jesus is willing, he's willing to destroy the lives of the children of Jezebel. It says in verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. So Jezebel is guilty of sexual immorality. And the product of sexual immorality is often children who in the ancient world, we don't really speak this way now, but in the ancient world would have been viewed as illegitimate. And it is the clear message of the Lord Jesus himself that he cares so much about the holiness of his name and the holiness of his people that the children of Jezebel he is willing to destroy. Now it's possible to take this figuratively, but I don't think we should, because I don't think we should weaken what Jesus says. I think we should recognize that there really is a zeal in the heart of Christ for the reputation of the Godhead and that Jesus causes his people to represent him in the world. And when their reputation is besmirched and stained and troubled, he is intent on doing everything necessary in order to destroy those who would stand against her and cause her to be unclean. Number four, Jesus is willing to make us pay what we owe. He says this in verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus is so concerned with the holiness of his church and his reputation that he's willing to make us pay what we owe. He would rather give to us grace, kindness, and abundance of life. He wants us to know the fullness of joy in him. He wants us to walk closely with him. He wants us to repent. But if we are intent on embracing Jezebel and her ways, then Jesus is intent on giving us what we deserve. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves his church more. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves his name more. And the passion that Jesus has for his whole church and the passion that Jesus has for his own glory and the glory of his Father causes him to give us what we deserve. But then there's this word of hope as we come to the end. 
It is, I think, one of the greatest words in all of the book. Because it's a word that reminds us that not only does Jesus know about our circumstance, and not only is Jesus willing to pursue our holiness, but Jesus actually cares for us. It's what he says in verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. What wondrous grace, what great mercy, what joy divine that Jesus Christ who knows his people, who is acquainted with our circumstances, who is intimately knowledgeable of our faithfulness and of our faithlessness, that he is willing to say, if you do not walk in these ways, I will not hold them account. I will not I will not throw everyone away. I will not pour out wrath on everyone as though you were all the same. I won't burden you with anything else. Instead, be faithful. Instead, be faithful. He says in verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. And then he offers in verses 26 to 29, the words that we read a few weeks ago, It's the word of promise that the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, that he'll be given authority to rule and reign with Christ himself over the nations. That the victory that Jesus has because he sees powerfully and walks powerfully will be that of those who are with him to the very end. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray on this day that you, in your kindness to us, would cause us to see if we walk in the spiritual idolatry or sexual immorality that mark that woman Jezebel who would lead your people astray. And God, if that's us, then help us to repent, lest we should get what we deserve and be paid what we owe. And I pray, dear Father, that if we find ourselves walking in holiness and pursuing you faithfully, if we know what it is to have a long obedience in the same direction, if our latter works are greater than the former, then we, may we hear those words of relief that Jesus speaks to the faithful ones. I will not burden you. Just be faithful. Let this be our calling, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.